I, I always yeah. say like starting a company is a process uh, and the process is a marathon, not a sprint. Because, <laughs> um, you know, when you start a company, it's always like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, do this. But it does take, you know, any kind of business takes time, right? So it's, so it's a marathon, not a sprint. You got to treat it that way. Um, and, uh, and entrepreneurs understand that and know that it's a process and enjoy that process for the ones that typically I see succeed. Hey, it's Zach video from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Frank Sinton, today's guest. Frank is an entrepreneur. He's an angel investor. He's an innovator. He's an inventor. Uh, he's kind of flying under the radar um, in terms of Boston. Uh, he's from Boston, from, from Concord, Mass. Um, he's up this way a lot, actually lives down in Florida now. But he's been all over. Um, he's traveled the world with his family. He's um, really made a name for himself in Los Angeles, uh, helping drive digital transformation for Sony back in the 2000s. Went on to build Beachfront Media into a big success uh, without any venture funding and a nice exit in 2017. And he's been spending the last five years angel investing and sort of working and tinkering on some new, exciting uh, next gen. Uh, technology ventures, uh, including some things in Web3. So excited to share this conversation with the community. And as always, thanks for your time. If you have recommendations for guests, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Stravideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Frank Sinton, the entrepreneur, investor, innovator, inventor. Frank, what else? What did I miss? How are you? Hey, Zach. Great to be here. Oh, and father too. Been father, (laughs) husband. Uh, mentor. Um, certainly to, to me over the years, it's been awesome um, getting to work with you in different capacities for, geez, like going on a decade at this point. Um, just for Boston Speaks Up listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you just give like kind of a top line sort of elevator on what your existence is today and sort of that multifaceted existence that you have? Because I think folks will find it really interesting. Sure. Well, I'm an entrepreneur and investor. Uh, I spent the last 15 years building up Beachfront Media. And uh, when I sold that to, to private equity, you know, rolled into, you know, have been rolling into more of an um, investor and entrepreneur and, and looking for the next big thing in Web3. Um, so, so really, at the end of the day, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and founder at heart, and I really want to work with other founders and entrepreneurs and helping them build their businesses. Cool. And sort of before we kind of get back into sort of unpack your story a bit, just what are some things that you're working on right now or companies you're advising or just trends you're seeing that are particularly sort of appealing to you at the moment? Okay, sure. So if you think about the last 15 years, uh, you know, being focused on video streaming and riding the wave of of web two and video streaming, um, you know, that's, that's been great, but think about the next 15 years and, and, what could I, what is, what's going to be big impact over the next 15 years? And I really, when I started thinking about this, it's really three main areas um, where, where I'm focusing on that are going to be big impacts for the next three years. Uh, one is uh, artificial intelligence and use of artificial intelligence in business applications. Um, obviously, it's had an impact already, uh, but I think really over the next 15 years, you're going to see uh, huge leaps of innovation in that area. Uh, the other area of focus is uh, on climate tech. Uh, so think about the the problems of the environment and what's going on. Uh, the increases in carbon, uh, you know, throughout the world, like climate tech is going to have a big impact over the next three years. And then my other area of focus is Web three. Uh, so so sort of the umbrella of Web three, as you think about it, is uh, crypto, NFTs, uh, and metaverses. Right. So so this is sort of the next big interaction and in communication of how people uh, communicate with each other over the next 15 years. Uh, this is really gonna change 
uh, a lot of the way we uh, do everything every day, uh, communicate with each other, uh, interact, businesses. Uh, there's going to be a major change and shift uh, with Web3, and that's going to be uh, an area that um, I think there's going to be a ton of innovation. So if you look at this sort of umbrella, it's really about innovation. You know, where is the next big waves of innovation going to happen uh, over the next 15 or 20 years? And, and those are the three areas that I'm focusing on. Amazing. Thank you. That's that was a tight overview. Yeah. So in terms yeah. of in terms of innovation and your itch to sort of pursue, take interest in, be a part of sort of next gen innovation. Let's talk about where that started. So like let's talk a bit about your your childhood. So you, you grew up locally in Boston and in, in, in Concord, Mass. Like what was your sort of first exposure to entrepreneurship? Sure. Uh the first exposure I had to entrepreneurship um, was really my father. So he he started a company called Think Technologies back in the 80s that was funded by Steve Jobs and, and Apple. And this is a time when you know it wasn't it wasn't typical for uh, someone to, to step away from a, uh, a nice corporate job uh, with everything that goes along with that 401ks and, and pensions, et cetera, and actually jump into a startup. Uh, but my father did that. And so, so really, you know, at an early age, I saw the excitement, everything that was going around that. Um, and, you know, they had a lot of, you know, engineers from MIT and they had, they'd all this pedigree coming in, jumping into, to, um, the startup and, uh, and really they changed, they changed the way a lot of things happened. Uh, they were the first integrated development environment for the Macintosh. Actually, they invented the visual uh, IDE for developers. And so they were sort of the platform that people built software for, for the Macintosh, which, as you know, uh, when it was introduced, it's completely changed the way interfaces were for personal computers. So I sort of saw that and I saw the impact that they were having and, and just got fascinated by it. I was still pretty young at the time. Uh, and just, you know, I would just go into, and the other thing that they had is they had, um, I just remember very vividly, they had this, uh, Star Wars arcade game, like in the office, and I would go in there and, and play that and play ping pong with uh, with people. And again, in the eighties, it was not typical to have a ping pong table in the office. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's in a lot of ways, that sounds like Cambridge in twenty twenty two. Where right. was where was the office? Was it on the one twenty eight belt? Was it in the city? One twenty eight belt. One twenty eight belt. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's just there's a lot of excitement, and and it wasn't just a stagnant office. And then everyone was like, knew that they were building something that was going to change. Good, you know, sounds cliche now, but it was going to change the world, uh, and it, and it really did in the in the world of personal computing. So that's really where I, my first exposure to being an entrepreneur and what that meant. And uh, you know, it was it was taking a lot of risk, but it was also uh, a great reward. So um, that company ended up selling to Symantec eventually, but um, but they really you know uh, had a big impact in in the way like software was developed. Great. So we can see where you started to get that entrepreneurial itch and, and maybe we'll tap in again yeah. to some of your collaboration and sort of learnings from your father in a little bit. But I'm also curious, sort of adjacent to that while you were growing up, like what are some of the, the jobs that you had uh, growing up that kind of taught you about hard work, uh, which is also pretty critical, right, to being a successful entrepreneur? Oh, yeah, definitely. So the first summer where I got a job or I got jobs. <laughs> I actually had two jobs. I was a I was a caddy uh, during the day down in Marion, Mass, the Contanza Golf Course, and then I was uh, a dishwasher at a seafood restaurant called the Matterport Chatterhouse. And uh, and through that experience, you know, I was working day and night. I, I quickly learned the value of a hard day's work. Um, I also learned I never want to work at a seafood restaurant again, <laughs> uh, especially in the back of the seafood yeah. restaurant. Uh, that was I would come home. From that job and, and my mom would make me take a shower in the outside shower before i could come in the house that's amazing <laughs> uh, yeah um so just just that alone like that you know having that experience um you know over the summer just tell me the value of hard work and and uh that uh you know nothing really comes comes easy when it comes to to uh to earning so yeah uh it was great that you know i got had those sort of dual shift jobs and and they weren't easy jobs either. Even being a caddy out in the sun all day was not like the easiest job. Although I wouldn't say it was extremely difficult, but um, but just like having that dual job and, and working hard just taught me the value of hard work and the value of a day's day's uh, day's work. 
Yeah, those. Yeah, and and also sort of the element of the the experiences that are humbling is really is really helpful. But I can relate yeah. a bit to the the showering. With I didn't have an outside shower when I'd come home from college, but I worked working at the bars at Barback on Boylston Street. My roommates would <laughs> insist that I uh, quickly showered um, when I came home from work in the bars because anyone familiar <laughs> with working in a in a bar maybe is familiar with the slop bucket. Um, one of my many tasks was was manning and emptying that thing. So yeah, when you were you were kind of in the back end of a restaurant bar operation, um, it, it, it certainly comes in handy that the Sinton, Sinton family had an outdoor shower because I I, oh, yeah. I I could see utilizing that um, became very important. So yeah. so let's talk about um, kind of getting towards uh, talk about also like that your like your schooling a bit and then what you were considering and, and sort of a spot, you know, like aspirationally sort of considering um, as a pursuit in life as you were 16, 17, 18, kind of marching towards, um, you know, what traditionally would be like going to college. Yeah, sure. I mean, so I've always been a lifelong like Boston Red Sox fan and uh, was a huge Roger Clemens fan. Of course, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I want to be a pitcher specifically. You wanted to be I, the rocket. Yeah, I wanted to be the rocket. <laughs> I studied the rocket over, over and over again. And of course, later on in his career, he was a trader. So I didn't really idolize him after that. But, yeah. yep. <laughs> um, uh, but I think at, at the end of the day, like I really idolized him. Wanted to be that pitcher, but you know, quickly realized after a few arm injuries that was not going to be the path that I go down. Um, and so. You know, going back to the learnings from from seeing that uh, excitement from my from my father, I decided I really wanted to be an engineer. Um, and I wasn't quite sure if I was 100% going to go into software or hardware or what it was going to be, but I knew I wanted to be an engineer. And so I, I applied early to Tufts University, got in as an engineer, and just went down that path. And I just wanted to to study. So I love I knew I love math, uh, and I love computers. So I just felt like that was the right the right area to, to go down. And, uh, and, you know, I think, you know, not only did I want to be an engineer, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted at some point, I knew at some point I was going to start my own business. Um, but I wanted to learn first, right? So I wanted to really like study, uh, software engineering and, and what it meant to be a software engineer. And, uh, and I knew it was just a matter of time before I would actually become an entrepreneur and start my own business. But, but, you know, I think that some of the, some of the learnings of just being a software engineer and understanding software really gave me the foundation in understanding the software that could, you know, that continue to be very useful uh, in every company that, um, you know, that I've been invested in as well as founded in. Like I understand the actual software itself. So, you know, uh, I, I basically like worked as a software engineer probably the first five or six years of my career after I graduated from Tufts. Uh, you know, writing C++, uh, started to get into Java when that came out, uh, JavaScript. So I was just eating it up. Every new scripting language I would learn, any new language that was coming out, I would learn it right away. Um, to the point where I also wanted to learn down to the details too. Like, oh, Louis, show me about assembly code. What is that about? <laughs> of course, didn't want to write assembly code, <laughs> but I wanted to learn about it, right? So I think I think this, the, this appetite for learning about software um, you know, my early career was really sort of uh, my my main focus. Interesting. So, for did you do you did four years at, at Tufts, and then what what was that? That's sort right. Of, that next what time period we're we talking about? Like nineties. Nineties, yeah. Yes, 90s. Like, so the nineties was when you started out your career as a software engineer, and if I'm hearing you right, it makes makes sense. The the sort of software and engineering background you found to be very useful all the way up to today and you're given your ability to sort of familiarize and not just having familiarized but kind of understand and be able to talk tech um talk software talk engineering yeah what were some of those like where did you work like right out of school and the, like those first couple of jobs and like did you have any did you face um did you have you know some great mentors in those first roles did you face friction as a young eager engineer or, or if you were someone that raised your hand you're like i'm gonna learn java i'm gonna learn this thing i'm gonna learn the next thing um did you find that that was really um that type of interest and skill set really allowed allowed you to sort of catapult 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one of my first bosses, his name was Eli, Eli Weiland. Um, he was my, the VP of engineering and, uh, and he was a great mentor. He, he actually was able to, to teach me a lot just about, you know, what it meant to ship software. So it was a company called MediLife Software. Uh, they developed software for people with diabetes to, to better, better manage um, your diabetes. And uh, a couple of scenes, like he, he always said, like, don't let perfection be the enemy of the very good. Right. So, so it's all about, you know, making a very good product, but making sure also the product gets out there in the hands of, in the hands of users. So you can get feedback, right? Because if you try to make it perfect, it would never get out there. You would never get feedback. So that was just one of the things you used to say. I mean, there is a lot of others, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's the one that really stuck to me is, um, yeah, you know, and I applied that throughout my career is like, all right, it's important to, to get, you know, to, to make a very good product. It doesn't have to be perfect to make sure it gets out there and iterate, right? So iterate on it um, and build on that and, and get feedback from your users and then build on top of that. So you may have a vision of your product to, to start with and and that's great and you build that product, uh, but at some point, you know, uh, you gotta you gotta get it out there in the world. And that was like one of the things like early on in my career I, I learned and and I've used that in every almost every company that, that I've been a part of. Nice. Shout out to Eli. When was um, la- have, you, have you stayed in touch with Eli? Have you lost touch? Off and on, yeah. yeah off and nice. on. So I, I should. He's in the Boston area, so I should uh, should contact him. Uh, I think he was at Amazon for for a while, and I'm not sure where he's at right now. But I should recontact him. The so shout out um, to Eli also, in here. That's something you can share. Yeah. With yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. And I also work for CMGI. You know, mm-hmm. uh, big internet conglomerate back in the day. Saw the dot com boom days and uh and that was you know just that was like cranking out the dot-com boom companies one after another with and without you know good business models (laughs) uh but uh but that was interesting and then i also um uh actually moved out to to uh the west coast and worked for um a guy named sky dayton uh at e-companies um for a while which is an incubator in los angeles uh so those are, you know, all all great like experiences like during the dot com boom days uh, of these companies, and you know, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, as as we've seen these cycles, you know, I've been through now two, well, this is the third cycle, been through back in the web one days, I like to say, um, you know, it really was like getting a product out there and getting it out there fast, uh, so you could have like a dot com out there. Right, but but some of them probably weren't ready to get out there, and they, and, you know, and obviously as as you know, we see now looking back in history, like some of them probably weren't real businesses, but uh, uh, but I think it was a great experience just being able to get software out quickly and um, you know building businesses from like zero to 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 launch in six months. Um, that was that was a great experience, and a couple of them did well, like Fog Dog Sports. I worked at, uh, which ended up going IPO. Uh, in I think 2000, and uh, um, eventually sold it to, to eBay um, uh, later on. But you know, so, some of these like just built really, really fast and, and got out there and and uh, were able to do really well. That's really cool. So I actually just kind of hit on the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is you and I similarly have sort of a, as part of our pursuit of our version of manifest destiny gone from Boston to Los Angeles. Um, I'm curious, sort of like, what was the rationale behind that? And what was at the time that you did that? Like, what, you know, what, what was the, what year was it? And like, what sort of, what was the appeal? What was the draw? What was the upside? What was the excitement that you sort of had in, in making that move? Yeah, that's funny. Cause I actually stopped. I, I did that. I actually moved to the West coast, to the West coast through Silicon Valley first. So I okay. worked at fog dog. It was actually in Silicon Valley. So I was actually drawn to the appeal of, of, um, of Silicon Valley uh, and the excitement around that, you know, just you go to a coffee shop and people are talking about, uh, you know, the, how they optimize their SQL queries. Like uh, back in the day, right? Wait, like, and what year so you, was that when you were first in uh, 99, 99. Okay. Yeah. So you really, um, you know, in the, in the Valley, you know, it is true that, uh, you know, you're surrounding yourself by entrepreneurs and people who want to do build the next big thing. So that was very, very exciting. It was during the dot com boom days. So you can imagine like everyone has their, you know, 
back of the napkin like business plan. Uh, so that was very, very exciting. But then I had this opportunity in Los Angeles as we recruited down there um, to, to basically you know, be the lead of my own company, uh, which is where I knew eventually where I wanted to be. Um, so I was really drawn in LA itself, um, what was just really starting to, to, to boom at that time. Um, it was sort of like probably five years behind Silicon Valley. So, but like, A, like I could lead my own company and, you know, this is something that's just starting to take off down in Los Angeles. Um, so I decided to move down there to, uh, to work for, for e-companies and one of their incubated companies. Um, and didn't regret that move at all because I it actually did, um, uh, I was able to, I worked in LA for 10 years, I think, after that. Um, and, and we did see like this huge growth in the Los Angeles area of, of technology companies. And I was able to be there during that. Yeah. Thank you for being a catalyst in that key growth, because at the end of that, <laughs> at the end of that decade, I was like, wow, it was, then people start like, so that was the 2000s. And then you get to 2000, you know, 10, 11, the early 2010s. And that's when you start hearing about Silicon Beach. But Playa Vista was still like, wasn't built up. Um, just sort of like it was all, yeah, it was yeah. all Santa Monica. It was yeah. All Santa Monica yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so what was, um, what was the, the company that you like, what was your role at the company? Like, were you like CEO, were you heading it up? And then what was sort of like the, the, the exit or in the transition? Like, how did you, how did you make your way to Sony pictures sort of leading that helping lead them through disruption and digital transformation? Yeah, well, one of the biggest misunderstandings of of uh, large enterprises is that there's no entrepreneurialism, like or no startup mentality in them, and that's not true. Uh, so, so my company actually ended up being acquired into uh, Business.com, uh, and so after that, after that was done, you know, I transitioned out of that role, and I was looking for the next um, the next thing to do, whether it, you know, jump into my own startup company. Um, but then this opportunity came along. My friend was working at Sony and and said, "Hey, like, there's this role that." Um, that's open. It was about uh, leading Sony in the next phase uh, towards the towards the digital studio. So that sounded really appealing. I was mm -hmm. like, hey, these guys have been around a long time, but but a lot of things were analog and not digital. And uh, and at the, you know, and I felt like yeah, entertainment is one of those areas that will eventually all go you know uh, IP based, right? So it will eventually all go via the web. Uh, it wasn't quite there yet, but um, but at the end of the day, like I felt like this is a great opportunity to to like be at the forefront of the digital studio and the digitizing of all entertainment. So I jumped at the opportunity and uh, and really was able to to you know have a big impact. Um, my main role at Sony was actually like evaluating new technologies uh, and where they fit in the entire sort of ecosystem of uh, of the digital studio. Um, so everything from like digital rights management um to digital dailies like recording of of movies um and digitizing that and sending it back to the studio those type of projects uh to back end like uh um you know workflow type of projects so it was really you know about changing all those workflows in the studio to, to make it more efficient and um and to digitize it so it could, you know all those entertainment assets that are built can eventually be uh be used digitally um uh, and be able to make, you know, obviously be able to monetize uh, digitally as well. Interesting. So th then you sort of segue from Sony Pictures into back into entrepreneurship and you found Beachfront Media. I um, would like for you to, well, and, and who could have predicted in 2007 what would have happened in 2008? Um, but it was a particularly challenging time to start a business. But how confident were you in what you were doing at Beachfront based on what you just talked about? The things that your your responsibility at Sony Pictures was to evaluate next gen tools and 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 softwares <clears throat> at the front and back end, and and you probably identified some interesting gaps where innovation was required and more tools were required to really help bring the entertainment industry into the digital era. So, so yep. we talk about some of those discoveries and sort of the um, kind of the founding story of, of, of Beachfront Media. Yeah, sure, sure. So what we knew at the time was, uh, again, all entertainment assets were going uh, digital. Um, and we knew that, uh, you know, a lot of user-generated started happening. YouTube was already taken off. This is around 2006, 2007. I started Beachfront in 2007. 
Um, but really, the, the idea formulated, you know, a couple of years before that. Uh, so we saw that there is a ton of ton of online video coming online, but that the the large entertainment companies, um, you know, weren't quite they didn't have the tools to be able to get their content out there and to manage that content. So like if, if an entertainment company can't manage and, and monetize content, they're not gonna put it out there, right? So, so we thought, oh, there's a really big opportunity here to help these companies uh, attain an audience, uh, you know, and be able to have tools to be able to, to get to that audience. And we felt like that was a big opportunity. And that was the original idea behind Beachfront is like, we're gonna be like a distribution arm uh and, and help these entertainment companies like find an audience online all right so that's and manage started, that audience and have and manage the audience yeah, so yeah yeah i mean be able yeah, to get the relationship reporting and, mm-hmm. and and build that relationship etc so mm-hmm. you know uh, and again this is like the very beginning of web 2.0 uh you know um facebook you know myspace is obviously out there facebook was taken off uh but again and youtube of course uh, i think youtube was acquired and in 2007 it was so like six right or seven there. yeah right yeah, yeah. it's right around when we we're yeah. on the beachfront uh and so there, and but there was a lot of other like online video sets at the time like daily motion and uh a bunch of other ones um and then at the end of the day like we said all right we're going to attack the problem with like video distribution and be able to like manage that and and hopefully make some money off of that for for uh the studio so we had early on deals with like uh, Hulu and, and CBS uh, and, and ABC and folks like that. And we really wanted to focus on, you know, building, helping them build an audience. And, uh, and so that was the, you know, and then we're going to make money off of a revenue share on the advertising. Right. Uh, so that was at the beginning part of beachfront and, uh, and it really, it really worked. You know, it took us a little while to get to the point where we we're generating, generating revenue. Um, I like to say, like with entrepreneurs, like don't expect, don't you know, be be like, just be ready to, uh, to not take a salary for two years sometimes, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, it's it's so cliche about like hope for the best, prepare for the worst. It did take us a couple of years to actually like find our groove and, and find like the right the right mix of like revenue share where to where. It could, where can we um, distribute this content um, and how we're going to make money on it, right? So it took a couple of years to actually get there. Um, but we finally found like a system that, that would really, um, that can scale basically, the scale on a distribution side. Very cool. So let's let's kind of double click into the lack of venture funding that you um, sought out. Did, did you ever consider it? And, and I mean, obviously you just mentioned one way is to, you know, be prepared not to take a salary for a couple of years, but you obviously had people working at beachfront. Like, how are you, like, what are some of the key things that you learned and what are some of the lessons you have in terms of like bootstrapping the business and, and not going for, for venture capital? Yeah. So our original plan was going to be, we're going to raise the angel. Then we're going to do a series A, a series B, right? We had that original plan of like, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to go, go venture capital. But as you know, the, as much as you can plan, you can't control macro economic factors, right? So, so we did raise, raise an angel round um, in the LA, and uh, I think we got raised like 250k um, or around there. So we raised the angel round, and we thought, all right, this is going to help us build to the point where we get a Series A. Well, guess what happened? Late 2007, huge crash, right? Um, which basically lasted through 2009, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and, and at the time when we started raising a Series A, it was right during that time. And we definitely had interest and in, we actually had offers on the table, uh, but they weren't good offers, right? Um, it, it, there were definitely offers like, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm giving how much percent of the company for how much money, right? So you scratch your head and, be, and, and turn that down. Do you mind, get, like, so, are you, would you mind giving like a rough kind of estimate of the type of exposure an investor was trying to get in 2008, nine in that? Bear market. Uh, here's 500k for 40 percent of your company, right? Like those type of offers. <laughs> um, so it was it was just not like to the point where we would we would take that, and uh, and so we kind of looked at ourselves and said, all right, either we need to shut this thing down or we're going to have to make money. And uh, and I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and I didn't want to shut it down. So uh, I was like, all right, well, we're down to our last few thousand dollars, and I'm like, well, we had this idea to put this 
JavaScript on on a video player and and start serving our own, our own ads, and it worked, right? Like we actually that was the catapult. Sort of not having that funding was a catapult to figure out how to make make more money than we were today. back against the actually, wall. <laughs> yeah, back against the wall. Like yeah. You better be. You better be profitable. I have to give my wife huge props because uh, she was the COO of our company and the co-founder with me, um, and she was definitely, you know, like said, like, all right, let's let's like figure out how to make money, or we have to shut this down. So she was really the catapult to that. But it was backs against the wall, and we had to figure it out. So we sort of spent a couple of weeks like engineering something and, and figured out how to how to actually make money more, at least more money. We actually were making some money. We had to make more money to to stay in the business. And we did that. We became profitable fairly, uh, fairly quickly. That's very cool. And, and actually was, my next question was going to ask about you and your, your wife, Lisa being sort of co-founders together. And, and, and honestly, like knowing your, like the advantages of that, and like the, the ability to sort of like, and, and I mean, maybe some challenges as you started to raise kids and, and, um, and need to kind of separate some things, but just the ability to like be in really close lockstep on all things, like, you know, could you speak a bit to, to that? Because it is it is atypical for a husband wife to you know founding team. Um, you, you know, hear about it, but uh, yeah, just like any any sort of like tips and lessons and sort of advantages you felt like that afforded um, afforded the two of you and ultimately Beachfront. Yeah, well, I have to remember we were both like professionals at the time. She was a she was an attorney for NBC. Um, you know, I was coming off my my Sony Pictures time, uh, and I was more on the technology side, you know, entrepreneur side. So we're both, you know, professionals, you know, the hardest part probably was bouncing, like starting a new family at, uh, as well at the time, right? That was, yeah. you know, throw, throwing kids in there um, and raising kids as a family and, and having like what I call like the fourth child, which is a startup. That was tough to balance, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the main thing with starting a business with, with your wife is, uh, you know, if you, have, if you need to balance each other out, right. And, and sort of, if you could be in your own lanes and, and you have different skill sets, like that's ideal, right. It's just, it's just like with any co-founders, like with any co-founders of the business, you want to have, you know, a balanced team that have different skill sets. So she and I definitely had you know, sort of different skill sets. I was more in the, uh, I was, I was more in like figuring out how to generate revenue and the product and, and the technology. Um, and she was very like, she's a lawyer, um, by trade. So she was like, operationally focused like let's come up with an operational plan let's uh you know let's make sure we have all these agreements in place let's you know let's make sure we have protections uh and let's make sure we're hiring the right people and, and managing uh the the balance sheet right so we had definitely two different areas that we focused on not that we didn't like touch the other areas but it was a great balance right just with any founding team you have to have a really good balance so if you do you know, and, and then adding a husband and wife layer on there also means you're managing a family too, right? right. <laughs> uh, so you just have to have like the right focus when you're at work. And then when you're at home, you have to be able to sort of separate that, separate that out a little bit, which was really, really hard, right? That was probably the hardest part is, you know, when do you, when do you shut off and have family time? Um, so we also, you know, made sure we always carved out a certain like time in the evening uh, where it's going to be, this is dinner with the family, hanging out with the family, then go to bed, and then we can start work again. So, so I think having that carve out too in um, in the evening was always really important for us. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, you, got, yeah, you guys are like a, a good yin and yang, but also with like really with each of you having good range to kind of support in all in all things across. Uh, let, let's talk a yeah. little bit about the so the ten year journey. So start in two thousand seven. In 2017, you sell the private equity, you sell the Penny Pritzker's PSP Capital. We met in 2013, so kind of midway through the journey. Um, mobile had proliferated, you know, mobile apps were big. And and now sort of that mobile app, mobile apps were kind of in, starting to influence like mm -hmm. the early connected TVs. And, and so I, I was really fascinated and intrigued by beachfront and it's a, and it's sort of ability to be agile and and introduce sort of adjacent sort of like complementary products to your core stack um and 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 do things in in sort of mobile and connected tv seven eight nine years ago that folks some folks who are maybe a bit naive 
thought was innovative in the last two, three years. Um, so I'd love to kind of for you to talk a little bit about sort of like maybe some of those like big moments in the 10 year journey and maybe not so much pivots, but kind of like evolutions and shifts and ultimately how you, you know, position the, com- the, 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 the sort of rocket ship for the landing um, in 2017. Yeah, sure. So, so we started out doing being video distribution, right? So I told you about that. Uh, when mobile started becoming really big, so one of the great things about having a video distribution company is you have a lot of analytics. So you can see where the trends are happening, right? Like uh, we did some early trends on HTML5 adoption, right? And we put out some anal- uh, analytics around that as an example. Um, that Those analytics actually ended up getting quoted by Steve Jobs in a, in a keynote once, actually. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. But, and, and, uh, and how cool is it that Steve Jobs, who who once he and Apple once uh, invested in your father's business? Yeah, that's that right. must have, that must have been cool for you. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, sort of, <laughs> sort of sidetrack. Steve Jobs uh, was like a big outside influence uh, for me, right? Outside of my father, like he was probably like the bigger one of the bigger like influences in my in my life. So he, uh, yeah. So he's the one that showed showed me that technology is more than just features and functionality. Right, um, it's more than a piece of hardware or software. Uh, you know, it has the ability to change people's lives uh, for the better, um, typically. But, um, but you know, I think that the whole thing about like building building software and hardware to change people's lives uh, was one one of the things that that he you know hit upon that really in the technology sector hadn't been done before. And uh, and I think that was a huge influence for me. So uh, especially in my career uh and technology right i said all right well this isn't just like zeros and ones this is actually going to change people's lives and uh and that was like a big influence for me but anyways back to your back to your question um you know we decided uh when we saw these when we saw this data and all the analytics around what was happening we saw this you know obviously huge uptake in mobile right so it's the iphone launch and then the iPad launch and we saw we saw like more and more people watching video content on mobile devices and uh, we knew we knew it wasn't being monetized very well uh, and again we've looked at the data for that and all right people just weren't making money on mobile and so there was no sort of incentive for the content companies to really like, focus on it and we said hey we know that that's a big problem in the space like how do I how are these we know mobile is only going to get bigger um, you know, and, and everyone was starting to get devices in their hands, right? So it was just a, you know, one of those things we knew someone was, would have to figure out how to monetize content on mobile. And we said, why not us? Right. So, so we actually went and built ads. This is where we pivoted to ad tech, um, uh, away from just being distribution. We wanted to build something that, that was a mobile first, um, uh, it's called now a video SSP. At the time, we just called it a monetization platform. Uh, we wanted to build something that was mobile first and that can help these content companies actually make money on mobile. And so in 2013, which I think, Zach, when you started working with us, uh, is when we we launched Beachfront as a, a video ad tech uh, player. Um, we launched our own SSP. Um, so that's sort of, you know, seeing those trends and, and decided to focus on that, like, that's really where you know we built that, and then the act, we actually decided to fully focus on that when we saw saw like that part of the business really really take off. Like it was a rocket ship, right? So so it became very clear quickly that um, that that was going to be like the core part of our business and this this distribution piece. Although it was nice, um, you know, it just didn't have the growth trajectory uh, as the other part of business. When I say quickly, like it's happened over a year. Right? Like doesn't it wasn't obvious like day one. It happened over a year, but um, we just saw sort of that trend month to month, and uh, you know around 2013, 2014. So that's going to be your focus uh, going forward. So and, that, and interesting. I want to jump in here. Sorry to cut you off, but it's like yeah. an interesting. This is where it, it helps to um, kind of get meta with things and pun intended, and start considering the waves. Like that was a Web two wave, and you start thinking of the metaverse right now. It's similar, like. And this is kind of a looking at entrepreneurs and talking to young mm-hmm. entrepreneurs listening. It's like, it's what you did when you first started Beachfront. It's what you were doing when you pivoted into like mobile 
supply side platform, monetization platform, you identified that this, that content companies didn't have control and an ability to manage and monetize content and mobile. So therefore they weren't prioritizing it. And that's mm-hmm. really what it's like for brands and in media companies right now in the metaverse. And I think where there's a, like why you see Andreessen Horowitz announce a $4.5 billion fund for web three companies. It's, it's, it's for all those companies to, to come up with the, you know, prudent sort of focused, deliberate business plans that are going to address how to help all sorts of businesses across verticals go and capitalize on their sort of share of the metaverse. Uh, yeah, and, and so that I just I just find that to be an interesting analogy to make at this point in the conversation. That's exactly it, Zach. I mean, yeah. it's, it's going to be a different interaction model, right? There's yeah. going to be new models like that come along with Web three, and that's Web three is not going to be just like a, you know, uh, let's like, yeah, you know, it's not Web two like, it's almost like a new model. Not even it's kind of like the next version, but not really, right? So like, think about Web one was just like point and click, right? Just interactivity. Web two was or you're added social and, and communications and interactivity that way. Web three is going to be completely different, right? Like there's going to be metaverses and uh, and just like virtual, you know, virtual goods, a virtual way of interacting with people, right? It's going to be completely like a new thing that it's going to take a while for for brands, for you know, entertainment companies, the big enterprises to get there, but. They need to get there, right? This is going to be the next 15 years. Um, you know, this is a brand new new way of doing things. And uh, and that's what's exciting. It's like kind of seeing seeing this like third phase. Um, right. Like a lot of the a lot of things, you know, are going to be similar to where where they were before, but it's also going to be different, right? I don't know a better there's no better way to describe that, but um, but it was definitely lessons learned from from previous like iterations that, that I'm taking forward and uh, and I think like Web3 is like really giving like a lot of opportunity out there for people that weren't part of the Web2 to, to like, uh, you know, I guess call it, call, call it like the, the Web2 wave or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, right. Like Web3 is going to be a whole new wave. Yeah. Whole new wave. It's a totally different wave. It's a different one to catch. If you're on the Web2 wave, it doesn't mean you're catching the Web3 wave. Um, right. There could be That's some right. bridges between the two, which you can talk about too. Uh, so just but that, and back on the and thank you like I, I I'm glad like we had to kind of double click into that for a moment yeah with re- definitely with regard so then 2013 2014 the video monetization sort of like as it's known today like supply side platform business uh, takes off and then talk about that you know between 2014 2017 the next four years like what is the what's the evolution of beachfront look like and 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 how do you how do you stick the landing. Um, into private yeah. equity. So, so along the, of course, like after mobile was connected TV, right? In 2015, like we launched connected TV again, and we wanted to be early. We want to be first, right? So, so we said, and connected TV um, at the time was sort of like, you know, that was like almost like it was similar to mobile in that you had like, um, you know, apps uh, on app stores and you have bundle IDs, things of that nature. Uh, don't want to go too deep in ad tech, but yeah, um, but actually, the big if I could jump in there, like I remember, like like the Olga K's of the world, like these like YouTube stars and people know today, like or maybe they don't know, like forty percent of of connected TV impressions come from YouTube. But that yeah, and so it stand to reason that early days in connected TV, when people were streaming online video content on TV, it was through YouTube. And so I remember I can remember having conversations with you about. Well, we have these YouTubers whose content is being consumed now on the big screen in the home, and it it could be interesting to kind of create apps that are more mm-hmm. where they own a bit more of their brand presence and they have a bit more ownership and and and, and management abilities and how they nurture their audiences and monetize their audiences. That's right. Yeah, we wanted to facilitate getting content on connected TV uh, as part of their monetization strategy, right? So so hey, how can we figure out ways to like you know, anyone that doesn't have a Roku channel, how can we get them a Roku channel, right? So kind of, mm-hmm. kind of tap it into our both distribution and monetization expertise at Beachfront. Uh, that's really what we did in Connected TV. So I think we have like 10 of the first 100 apps on the Apple TV app store as an example, um, like early on. So we knew we just wanted to be in Connected TV really early. And we, we wanted to, you know, facilitate content, get in there as well. Um, 
so yeah, so we, we, you know, and the connected TV part was really, you know, thought mobile was a rocket ship connected TV really started taking off um, to the point where we started garnering like a lot of outside of attention uh, in the 2017 um, timeframe, which is when we did the private equity deal. Right. So, um, so, so like as the company was growing and we were, we were profitable too at the time, uh, again, you know, not having taken like venture capital outside capital, like, we always focus on the bottom line and making sure we're at least um, profitable. Um, so, so that definitely helped like getting the private equity deal done as well. Um, so yeah, just kept, we just kept focus on, on this whole, uh, you know, video monetization platform and, and we knew connected TV was going to be huge and sort of shifted a lot of resources towards that. And, and it worked out, right. We got it. We did our, um, uh, our deal in 2017 because, uh, you know, uh, Penny Pritzker, who heads up PSP Capital, um, saw that, you know, this was the future, right, um, of television and, and advertising. And uh, Beachfront was at the forefront, like we're at the forefront of innovation. So, um, uh, and we're profitable, right? So we checked all those boxes and uh, had a great team, right? You had to check all those boxes. You can't leave one unchecked at the time. Um, and uh, in late 2017, uh, we did the, uh, did the deal. That's great. And and also we're able to so you're so when you sell to private equity, it's an interesting interesting exit in that private equity comes in, they take a certain you know I think as as was stated as was shared publicly, like they take a majority stake, but you still have a strong vested interest in the company, and and even today you're you're sort of a, a board of director. Um, mm -hmm. it, that yep. that's right, and, and and could you just speak a little bit to sort of like what like the the what's it, what it's afforded you um you know having that exit you know still being able to you know nurture and guide from from a board seat for beachfront but it's like sort of how you're starting to you know uh widen your aperture again and sort of the things that you um are able to not just um learn about but actually make investments and, and maybe maybe apply some of your time and resources into yeah, sure. I mean, we didn't see it as an exit. We saw it as a partnership, actually. Um, cool. And, and and I think the main thing about that is we we didn't, you know, the reason you know, we, you know PSP and, and Penny Prisker made a ton of sense is she was coming off, um, you know, being secretary secretary of commerce under President Obama, and uh, I was just really focused on the private sector uh, at the uh, you know 2017 uh, in technology. We felt like it aligned really well to what we needed to do, which was um, sort of reinvest in the company, right? So uh, so we saw it as a partnership and it's, you know, as a, a part, part A and part B, it took the pressure off of, um, you know, of me and Lisa as, a, as the co-founders and owners um, to be able to go and, and reinvest in the business, right? So, so I think there's a couple, you know, a couple of really good reasons there to, to do that deal. Um, and it was, a, you know, and it was a great partnership because, uh, you know, PSP can open a lot of doors, right? And uh, and take the pressure off in terms of funding and 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 add resources in, right? So it made a ton of sense for the business, and and the uh, the business obviously has done really well since then, right? It wasn't just it wasn't just um, take an exit and leave, right? I actually stayed on with the company um, for additional four years. Um, so and we've been building towards, you know, being. Uh, you know, the, the number one TV advertising uh, platform, right? Not just connected TV, but also uh, you know, how, do you, how do you monetize traditional linear TV in a programmatic way, in an automated way, I should say. Uh, so, so there still, you know, was a lot of innovation to be had in that space. Um, and this afforded us to be able to, to go after that. I love it. It wasn't, it wasn't an exit, it was a partnership. Great. That's, that's right. That's well that's said. Right. And yeah, you stayed on yep. in the pres president role, active full-time uh, role for four years. And so you only recently shifted from the president role to the board of directors um, role just a like a couple, two, three months ago, like this year, 2022. This year. Yep. Yeah. So uh, how are you enjoying like a bit more freedom and just a bit more time? Um, what's, what's that, what's that like? Um, and then I'd be curious if, if you wanted to share a little bit about some of the role you play in angel groups, um, in particular, listeners are going to be uh, familiar with TBD Angels. Um, we've had Jason Burke and David Chang on the podcast, and obviously, it's just it's grown into just a really big um, 
angel network regionally, but really one of the bigger ones, I think now in the States and you participate in a lot of, in a lot of deals there. Um, so we'd love for you to sort of just talk about the, talk about your freedom a bit and then, and then talk about how you're applying your time through angel groups and, and what you, enjoy, you know, maybe some of these startups that you enjoy working with. Sure. So, you know, obviously transition out of what I call the operational role, right? The day-to-day -day role and, and playing the strategic role on, on the board level. Um, you know, so obviously like all that time I was spending on the operations beach right now, I have, I have that time back, right? So it's always about uh, investment of time, not just, not just money, but investment of time and money uh, and, and where you're going to put that. So, you know, and I, I've been kind of itching to, to get into, you know, Web3 as it's been taking off. Right. So I, I first started like looking at crypto in 2017, 2018, you know, put some money into some coins, et cetera. So been um been been like sort of in the crypto space for uh, a couple of years, four years now, I guess, uh, four or five years. And so I've been sort of on the periphery looking in on a lot of web three. Um, but you know, we're just at the beginning of web three. Uh it's not, it's not like the big the big like leaders like are still being formed and uh it's still really early right so so as i transitioned out of my operation role beach run i had a lot more time i'm like hey i'm gonna spend a lot of time you know in web3 because this is going to be the area where you know th there's the most innovation right now uh and there's entrepreneurs who are just first-time entrepreneurs like getting into the space um there's second time and third time ones of course as well um, but this is really where a lot of the innovation is happening right now. Uh, so sort of transitioned into, you know, a role as advisor investor um, uh, in, in that space. Right. And, and that's, that's been great. I mean, it's been, uh, you know, one of those things like, you know, when you're, when you're operating a company, um, you know, there's a lot of day-to-day -day things like looking at the numbers and what's going on, like where, you know, you're kind of concentrated on that. Like I can't, I wouldn't say like, you know, 100% on that because there's always an innovation happening within a business. Um, but then you like, once you cut the ties with that and, and you're able to move into a new role where you're 100% focused on, you know, this new space where there's a ton of innovation, it kind of like frees your mind to like think about all the possibilities <laughs> uh, of what, what could be like going forward, right? So, uh, so it's been great. It's been great. And seeing, um, seeing how excited people are uh, in the space, even with the recent downturn, right? It's not, uh, you know, the last 60 days, 90 days, you know, money's definitely gotten a lot tighter, um, but the founders and entrepreneurs are still super excited, right? So, so going back to my experience in like web 1.0 and 2.0, there's always been a downturn, right? You had the dot-com boom crash. You had, you know, 2000, late 2007 to 2009, you know, downturn uh, as well. Things have always rebounded and rebounded like even stronger, right? Like, um, you know, I would say like things like Amazon and Google came out at, after the dot com crash. They came out much stronger, right? Um, and then, and then in two thousand seven, two thousand nine, like things like YouTube and Facebook like came out even stronger from that, right? So, so right now, this is huge opportunity. Like, you know, and who knows how long this downturn is going to be, right? It could be a couple of months. It could be a couple of years. Uh, but there's going to be companies that come out of it really much stronger than they even were going into it. Um, there's going to be new companies too, right? So that's the opportunity right now as a as an investor and an, an advisor. Um, and really, I see myself as a founder and entrepreneur first. Um, there's there's just like huge opportunity right now. And the great thing about it downturn too is like you really find out, you know, I say like you find out who the true founders and entrepreneurs are, right? Like. Who are the people are going to stick to it uh, and and be stubborn and stick to it uh, and and go through this like downturn, right? And at the end of the day, like those are the companies that are going to really succeed, and those are the entrepreneurs you want to uh, that you want to be uh, working with. Does that makes sense. So, like, I, mean, I, I always yeah. say, like, starting a company is a process, uh, and the process is a marathon, not a sprint, because. <laughs> um, you know, when you start a company, it's always like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, do this. But it does take, you know, any kind of business takes time, right? So it's, so it's a marathon, not a sprint. You got to treat it that way. Um, and, uh, and the entrepreneurs understand that and know that it's a process and enjoy that process are the ones that typically I see succeed. Um, 
and, and do well in the business. So not saying like you need to be totally stubborn, like even in our business, we saw that we were flexible and we we pivoted to where we needed to be. Um, but even that that took time. It wasn't like one day we we're just like boom, this is it. Um, so I think like I think just looking at a business as a process of of building is super important. And uh, and then have this huge opportunity right now to, to form like the next big, you know, the next Facebooks and the YouTubes are being started right now. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. And I thought you put it well when you talked about like things rebound stronger. Like that's like a very positive message, like to get out there and and kind of motivate entrepreneurs right now to do the work. And actually it begs a follow-up question. I think we covered this a little bit in the, in the pre-podcast questionnaire about sort of it and its ability you have. Um, and I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs have, which is to be strategic to be, and also be a tactician. Um, and I think, I don't know if you want to elaborate that a little bit, but just the ability and like, that's the kind of leadership style that you have had in your career. Right. Which is like, I'm not going to tell people what to do. I'm going to help guide them and I'm going to show them like, here's how we're going to do it. And I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to do, and I'm going to get shit done also. That's right. That's right. So there's definitely like, there's people who are out there who are, who are advisors that are just kind of giving advice and not really getting, getting their hands dirty and, and down in the weeds. That's not me. Right. Um, I, you know, I always feel like, uh, you know, you need to understand down to the details of like, uh, of of the business to really understand the business, right? That's not to say you can't be an advisor like looking at, at a high level, and that's that's fine. Um, but you know, my my leadership style um, is really lead by example. So it's really easy to to talk about something. Um, it's completely different when you actually do it. So a leader really, you know, needs you know needs to be able to influence, convince all parts of a company about the direction and the plan of execution. So you need to convince the boardroom, you need to convince the engineers, you need to convince the salespeople and, and everyone else. So if a leader is not willing to do something, why would someone else want to do it, right? Like the best leaders can be both strategic and tactical. So strategic level thinking, strategy, you know, what's the strategy of the company? Where are we going for? What's the plan? Let's be tactical. Like, hey, like how many, you know, how many sprints are we doing? Like, how often do we do them? Uh, you know, what's, you know, what are the actual tools we're using from an engineering perspective? Like, you know, those are, those are important things for leaders to at least understand. They don't have to make the decisions on things, but um, be able to like get in there and lead by example and, and show like it's super important. So, so to me, like, even as an advisor in a company, like I like to say that, oh, I, I can like jump in and do, do this if you need me to. Right, like it's whatever it's whatever company really needs, because every startup is under resourced, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, what's you know going into the company? So, what's your pain point right now? All right, let me help fix that. Right, that's really important. I think that's like, you know, my this has been my leadership style all along. Is like how to you know figure out what's the pain point for a company today, or what's going to be the pain point. Let's try to anticipate what it is, so we don't have to actually have to go through that, you know, in six months from now. Um, those are those are things that, um, that I, you know, I tend to really focus in on. Very cool. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I want to double back, um, and, and revisit the, the three trends we talked about earlier and just with regards to like sort of your present day focus and invest sort of investment strategy around AI, climate tech, web three, any examples um, you know, Squark AI comes to mind as one you invested through TBD that sort of, sort of falls in that first bucket, but, um, any examples across the board, um, in particular, like any, any sort of examples or categories or types of web three companies you think are particularly wise to pursue, um, right now, I'm just, just curious kind of, you know, what, you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit on, on, on some of the focus across those three buckets. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm really, so I think like metaverses are great, but like what are the, what's some of the underlying pieces of the metaverse that need to be in place really for the metaverse to work? Um, so, so one of the areas I've really been fascinated by is NFTs. Um, now, not, not NFTs is just collectibles, right? Like I think the collectibles market is always going to be there and that's going to keep growing, but NFTs as a utility. Um, 
how can you how can you use like NFTs to to be you know utility things like brand loyalty, um, things such as managing uh, your rights, like if you're if you have some sort of entertainment asset, even if it's like a piece of content, like a video content, like how do I how do I maintain that that's like authentically mine and and uh, how can I distribute that and maintain the rights and royalties around it? Uh, so I've been looking at a lot of opportunities at this like sort of underlying infrastructure of of, of Web three, um, whether it be metaverses, whether it be you know NFTs on on Web two type of sites. Um, you know, this, there's sort of base infrastructure things. Um, uh, BZ is a company that I've been I've, I've been helping out. Uh, they have a, a NFT platform to manage uh, rights and royalties around any um, any asset, um, which is super interesting. Um, you know, I think like there's a lot of opportunity for um, for AI in the space too. So like AI as a general category is pretty broad, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can have AI in like almost every sector of the of the economy, you know, including Web three, right? So again, this is like underlying infrastructure that's being put in place uh, today. Like Squark AI is helping uh, helping with AI around um, you know business outcomes, right? So it's like a you know a piece of like it's a piece of the sort of like sector of like brands uh, as an example. Like how do you how do you affect and get better outcomes for your uh, for your brand and for your purchases, right? So there's like super interesting things happening like in all these different areas. Um, even a couple of like XSET that I invested in, like there's a lot of um, you know things around like gaming, right? Like you know how do you manage like these celebrity gamers and how do you build and monetize you know that? Like that's kind of what they focus in on. Um, so really, you know, for me personally, I really look at sort of the underlying infrastructure that needs to be put in place to really scale. Uh, Web three going forward. Um, that's really been my focus. Nice. The the nuts and bolts. You know the infrastructure. The nuts and bolts. That's go. right. The nuts. Yeah. The nuts and bolts. Um, and the great thing about the nuts and bolts is going to be there's going to be you know many winners, right? Uh, when you go direct to consumer, you often you know not to say I'm not doing direct to consumer at all, but it's often like you know there's one or two winners, right? Uh, uh, you know as we've seen with like Web one and Web two, like. It starts with a bunch of people, like, and, and they're all trying it out. But then there's YouTube that takes off, and all the other video sites like don't do well, right? And Facebook takes off, and a lot of the other social sites just went away, right? So, mm-hmm. direct the consumer is a you know a, you know one or two winner game. And the infrastructure side, though, you know nuts and bolts, there's a lot of people that that win, right? So there's a there's a lot of businesses that would do really well. Um, you know, some would turn into unicorns, some would turn into hundred million dollar companies, like. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, like I, I think, like that's an area that um, that uh, you know, I'm feel I feel very comfortable in. Again, going back to my software engineering background, um, I feel comfortable in, and and that's a lot of things that need to happen. Like, how do you, uh, like for example, how do you manage identity, right? Like, so I'm getting involved in that space. So, uh, especially around NFTs, like how do you how do you really verify that you know piece of artwork or or a digital asset is is really owned by the person that says they own it, um, and how do you tie that into an identity that um, that's also anonymous, right? Like, so it's kind of like crypto is very anonymous, but like at some point you got to tie it into identity. So there's a lot of problems like being solved right now that that are super interesting that need to be solved in Web three. Great. Well, this should come as no surprise because I know the answer. But would you share with listeners? your challenge because we like to end the episodes with our guests sharing a challenge uh, for the listeners. <laughs> my challenge. Okay. That's great. That's great. So um, my challenge to listeners is go to a metaverse such as Decentraland, but you can pick another one and try it out going and try it out for an hour or two. Um, it's funny. Like, so many people in the space actually haven't joined a metaverse and tried it out. Um, uh, so you can see kind of where the user experience is now and, and, and what are the shortcomings and where does it need to go? Like, so I highly encourage people to, to try it out. I tried it, I tried it on Decentraland and, and learned a lot just in a couple of hours when I did it, like, I think it was a couple of months ago. Uh, so I encourage users to do that. Go and try a metaverse. Nice. That's awesome. 
bonus final question. Uh, it's June 10th, 2022, when we're recording this. The Boston Celtics are up two games to one in the NBA Finals. Can I get a prediction? <laughs> Game six, baby. <laughs> Celtics and yeah, six? I think Celtics and six. Yeah, Celtics and six. Amazing. I just can't, I, I, you know, two more wins and they're, they're there. So Yeah, pretty we'll exciting. Hope, hopefully Paul Pierce comes back and, uh, and uh, comes to the next couple of games in the well, garden. I'd be remiss not to share it. And I've shared the, I shared this story with you offline, but I have a, a nice, uh, authentic, you know, white Boston Celtics, Paul Pierce Jersey. And my almost five-year-old daughter is super into the Celtics, but what, what five-year-old can stay up till midnight watching basketball games. So if the Celtics win, I leave a Paul Pierce Jersey hanging in her room. And when she wakes up and it's there, she screams with excitement and comes running in my room, um, with the jersey, so um, That's Paul great. Pierce. So Paul Pierce is, is <laughs> makes a regular is has a regular presence in the Servideo household, and I also love him on the sidelines yelling at Draymond Green. Um, in the yeah, game. It's, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's fun, man. <laughs> two more, two more wins. That's all they need. Two more wins, Frank. This has been a pleasure. Really appreciate all the time today, and looking forward to sharing this with the community. Thanks, Zach. All right, cheers. Have a good one. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>